Uh, we recently received new credit cards because someone had stolen our information and was making fraudulent purchases. So we canceled the cards and had new ones sent to us. Has that ever happened to you before? Yeah, right. Well, companies, they're really trying to beef up their security, especially their online security. I don't know if you've noticed, but the online security questions are much more intrusive than they used to be with just the standard, hey, what's your mother's maiden name, right? In fact, with this last go-around, one of the questions I had to answer was this, and that is, who was your favorite school teacher? Good question, right? Now, I was homeschooled, so <laughs> I didn't have many options. But let me ask you, 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 you don't have to say it out loud, but how would you answer that question? Don't have to say it out loud, but who was your favorite school teacher? It's, it's hard to overstate how important and influential teachers are, right? Especially good ones. But for a moment, I want you to consider another question. I want you just to think outside the classroom here. And that's this. You, you don't have to say it out loud, loud. But what would you say is life's greatest teacher? According to a recent study from the researchers at the University of Bristol in England, they say life's greatest teacher is the failures of others. Through a series of tests that monitor brain activities, researchers discovered, please hear me, that it's not our peers' successes that stick with us, but it's their failures. And these failures not only stick with us, but they also shape the future choices and decisions we make. So in other words, as the researchers state, life's greatest teacher is the mistakes of others. And think for a moment how true that statement is. I bet if we went around this room this morning... We all could share stories and lessons we learned from observing other people's mistakes and failures. For example, I did not have to know and learn myself that driving in a car with no shoes on while your feet are wet is a bad idea. You know why? Because my older brother Todd did that, and when he did, he drove the family van through the living room wall. Okay? That stuck with me, right? Life's greatest teacher, arguably life's greatest teacher, are the mistakes of others. As Groucho Mark once said, learn from the mistakes of others. You can never live long enough to make them all yourself. Amen, right? And you know what? The Bible would affirm that statement. 
This morning, our study in 2 Samuel leads us to chapter 13, which is an awful chapter. As my Hebrew professor often said, the Bible is not G-rated, and our text this morning proves that point. You see, 2 Samuel 13 records the awful account of Amnon raping his half-sister, Tamar. If the story of Amnon and Tamar were a television drama, you would not watch it. If it were a paperback, you would not choose to buy it. Yet this terrible story with its ugly details, are graphically recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. Which raises the question, why? Why would God preserve such a dark story? Well, when we take a moment to see how this passage fits within the overall story of redemptive history, our question begins to get answered. For we quickly discover that on one level, this text shows us that neither David nor David's immediate sons are going to fulfill the promises given to David by God in 2 Samuel 7. Remember those great promises, right? God promised that all of his saving promises are going to be fulfilled through a son of David. Well, as we take a step back, we quickly discover on one level that this episode in 2 Samuel 13 shows us that it's not going to be one of the immediate guys from his lineage. This is to say, on one level, this passage furthers the overall narrative of Scripture by forcing us to look to some future son of David who will fulfill all of God's covenant promises. So that's on one level. Yet on another level, as we dig down into the details of the story, we find that the sinful failures recorded in this chapter, please hear me, they're meant to teach us. The Apostle Paul, who knew this story, and indeed the entire Old Testament exceptionally well, he makes this insight concerning the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10, referring to the failures of Israel. This is what he says. He writes, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do you know what that assumes? that we can desire evil. And that left to our own vices, we most likely would. Paul is saying that such grievous sins and failures of Israel have been written for instruction so, they wouldn't, so that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, such evil events have been recorded so we would you could say, learn from their mistakes. 
Indeed, Paul also says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that passages like this are indeed profitable to train us in righteousness. So, what counsel does this dark chapter offer us so that we might not desire evil as those in 2 Samuel 13 did? What lessons can we learn from this sordid tale? Let's find out together. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 13. That's page 264 in that paperback Bible. And follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 22. We read this. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now, as, as we're about to see, it's best to think of Amnon's feelings towards Tamar as lust rather than love. Why do I say that? Because look at what the author says in the very next verse, verse 2. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon, notice this, to do anything to her. All Amnon can think about is what he can do to her, let the reader understand. In his mind, she is an object, not a person. Amnon, and the narrative's going to make this really, really clear, Amnon is not filled with biblical love, but he is consumed with sinful lust towards his half-sister, Tamar. And like his father David, Amnon is lusting after forbidden fruit. God's law clearly, clearly forbid what Amnon wants. Amnon knows this, and everybody else in this narrative knows that. Indeed, the author, I want to argue, wants us to see Amnon not simply as following in the steps of his father David, but also as Adam of old. Amnon, we're about to see, is, is another Adam. And, and how do we know this? Because listen to me, because just like the serpent in the garden, the text let us know that someone very crafty comes along and speaks to Amnon. Look at the next verse, verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemia, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very what? Crafty man. Now, let me ask you. Jonadab is a crafty man. What kind of counsel do you think Jonadab is going to give Amnon? Do you think it's going to be good or bad? Bad. In fact, listen to the hiss in what he suggests Amnon to do in the following verses, verses 4 and 5. And he, Jonadab, said to him, Amnon, 
He said, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Again, let me ask you, do both Amnon and Jonadab know that God's law forbid sexual relations between a brother and a sister, even between half-sisters and half-brothers? Yes, they know this is forbidden. They know this is wrong. Yet what does Jonadab encourage Amnon to do? Does he tell him to repent of his sinful sexual desires? Does he tell him to flee the passions of youth? No, what does Jonadab tell Amnon? He devises a plan to get Amnon all alone with Tamar. So what will Amnon do? Will he forsake his sinful desires? Or will he listen to his crafty friend that has a hiss with it? Look at verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. So what did he do? He listened to the voice of the one who is crafty. And as we're about to see, please hear me, (laughs) that's all who Amnon listens to. He is deaf to every other voice that speaks to him in the rest of this narrative. He's deaf to every other person. The only person he listens to is Jonadab. So notice the trap is set. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then David sent home Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. Notice how intentional the narrative slows down. It's as if the author invites us into the kitchen there with Tamar. In fact, the author wants us to see something. You know what the author wants us to see? He wants us to see the kindness of Tamar. What a sweet girl this is. To stop what she's doing, to go into her half-brother's house, to take the time to bake the cakes. This text is it's slowing down so we can see the kindness of this woman. Yet you know what Amnon sees? Not her kindness, but just an object to gratify his sexual urges. For notice what he does next, verse 9. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, 
but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. That phrase, send everyone out, we've seen it before if we're reading our Bibles carefully. And the last time it was used in a significant way was by Joseph in Genesis 45.1 as a preface before his family was about to reconcile. Now here that same phrase is used not as a preface to family reconciliation, but rather as a preface to a sexual sin concerning family, and that's incense. Notice what happens next there in verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring me food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. Can you imagine how startled she must have been? And as we're about to see, Tamar is a God-fearing woman. For in this frightening situation, you know what she does? She speaks truth to Amnon's face. She calls him, she says, do not do this evil thing. However, as I mentioned, Amnon's lust has so overtaken him that he is deaf. He can't hear or he won't hear. Look at what she says in the following verse. She answered him and said, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. She is speaking truth to this man. And he'll have none of it. She then says, now therefore please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. Now please understand, Tamar is not suggesting in any way that God's okay with her to marry Amnon. In this moment, she is grasping for straws, hoping she can hold Amnon off for a little bit long enough to flee. She's like, just talk to the king. Talk to the king. He'll, he'll work it out. However, Amnon does not listen. He instead commits a great sin against Tamar and the Lord, which is recorded there in verse 14. The text says, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Please pause here for a second. So Amnon's sexual urges have been satisfied. He claimed he was deeply in love with Tamar, so much he was so in love that he was ill. So what does he do next? Does he buy her flowers? Does he propose and ask her to marry him? No. 
And faith, this is what I want you to see. Notice carefully what we're about to read. This is the destination that lust leads every person. Look at the following verses, verses 15 through 19. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go! But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong, and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not what? Listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and she went away crying aloud as she went. Friend, you know how Amnon treats her? After he's satisfied his sexual urge, after he's given in to his lustful passions, he literally treats her like a piece of trash. And sadly, her story isn't unique. Friend, this is the fruit that lust always produces. What you lust for, you will eventually loathe. What you lust for, you will eventually loathe. Indeed, this, I want to argue, is the important truth that the author wants us to glean from this passage. Friend, all Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. And if we are going to be complete, if we're to grow in righteousness, then we must know this truth, and that is, what you lust after, you eventually loathe. What you lust after, you eventually loathe. Please hear me. Young and old alike, lust never leads to satisfaction, but hatred. Not hatred for your sin, but hatred for the object you lust after. As I mentioned earlier, sadly, Tamar's experience is not unique. And you know what? Neither is Amnon's. How many men who once their sexual lusts have been satisfied quickly hate and try to discard the very woman they were once consumed with lust for? Friend, you can take this to the bank. Lust always produces thorny, sinful fruit. Indeed, as we see here, it bears the fruit of destruction. And woe to us if we fail to heed this truth. Here is a failure. 
here is a mistake of others. Let us learn from it. This truth is meant to keep us from desiring evil, as Paul would say. Now notice the response of both Absalom and David, especially especially David. Man, as we're about to see, David is no better than Eli. In fact, David is a second Eli. He's an impotent parent who refuses, who refuses to discipline his son. And you know what? Several years ago, we preached through and studied First and Second Kings. And how does Second Kings chapter 1 begin? With David refusing to discipline and correct another one of his sons, Adonijah. David is a lot of things, but he's no great father. Because notice his response to this terrible news. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now, there's a lot that could mean. I think the narrative kind of explains it, as we're going to see next week. Uh, Absalom is going to act in vengeance. He is ticked off at how his sister has been treated. But now notice there, the rest of that verse. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And that's it. Here was the guy who when Nathan told him about that parable with the man and the lambs, he was upset and he was ready to do something. But no action taken here. No action in his own house. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Uh, Jane Dinscore lives in San Antonio, Texas, and she is a passionate animal care activist. She, she loves animals. Well, one day she rescued two abandoned kittens and she wanted to nurse them back to health and tell me, what, what kind of food, if you saw a couple of abandoned kittens and you brought them into your house, what kind of food would you give these two little kittens? Milk, milk of course, right? And that's, that's what Jane tried to give them. However, you know how the kittens responded to the milk? They destroyed the feeding bottles. And they did so rather violently. So after enduring a few nasty, nasty scratches on herself, Jane decided to contact the local animal control service. Guess what? They weren't kittens. They were bobcats. The animal control spokesperson said, quote, Looks can be deceiving. Sometimes things that look innocent and sweet are actually quite dangerous. You see, Jane failed to see those kittens 
for what they truly were. Faith, there's something else that many people think is rather innocent when in reality it is quite dangerous, much like those bobcats. Indeed, it is not only dangerous to you, but all those around you. You know what that is? It's lust. Notice what we just observed in the passage that I read. Friend, look at what Amnon's lust produced. Look at the destruction it caused. Friend, lust is not benign. It is dangerous. But I have to confess to you, and, and I, I'm guilty of this, you know what our problem is? We don't see it that way. Honestly, we think our lust is not any more harmless than kittens. I know I do. I often fail to see it correctly. This is why we need passages like this. This is one of the reasons, not the only reason. This is one of the reasons why we need passages like this. It helps us see lust for the grievous, destructive, awful, abhorrent sin it truly is. And as this text illustrates, what you lust after, you eventually loathe, you eventually hate. So what I want to do is for just the next couple minutes is I want us to consider this question, that is, how should we as God's people today, how should we respond to this sad tale? This is to say, what kind of counsel would God's word give us so as to avoid falling into the same sin as Amnon. Because hear me, Faith, look at me. None of us are immune from sexual sin. None of us are immune from letting lust overwhelm us, be it sexual or any other kind. So what steps should we take? Well, I believe God's word directs us to respond in three ways. I want you to hear me very clearly. These are the three biblical actions Amnon failed to take. So we want, right, life's greatest teacher, the mistakes of others. We're looking at this grievous thing, and what, what can we learn here? What can we do that Amnon failed to do? Well, God's word, I think, would direct us in three, three ways. And the first is this. Number one, crucify your lustful passions. Look again at verses one and two. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Last month, the Washington Post ran this article. It says, some people are actually paying to get lost on vacation. You read that correctly. Get lost 
is a travel company that creates, quote, an ultimate adventure challenge that spirits travelers away to a mystery destination and then leaves them alone in the middle of a remote landscape. Depending on the location and the duration of the distantly supervised trek, the cost can start at $10,000 and veer into the six-figure territory. The company found that, listen to this, lockdowns and travel restrictions produced a longing in people for adventure. And as is evident by their success these past 18 months, their business has definitely struck a chord. The destinations include places like Iceland, Nambia, Morocco, and the United States. In most cases, travelers don't know where they're going until they receive their flight information. In fact, some, they fly by private plane. And they don't even know where they're going. They just open the door and say, there you go. Okay, to be honest, does this interest any of you? I see some people shaking their head. I see, I see a couple people kind of raising their hand, okay, right? Yeah. Mixed crowd here, okay. You know, getting lost on vacation is one thing. But what about getting lost in life? In fact, you know how you can get lost in life? You don't have to pay anyone. No, all you have to do is be led by your lust. Faith, please hear me. Lust is a terrible life guide. Yet notice, that is exactly what was driving Amnon. Was his desire for his half-sister Tamar sinful and forbidden by God? What? Yes. So tell me, class, what should Amnon have done? It's not like the Bible is silent on this matter, is it? Throughout Scripture, we are told, we are exhorted as God's people, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we are told and exhorted to crucify and put to death our sinful passions. Not to be led by them, but to crucify them. I mean, think of what Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5. What did he say? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We're not to be led as, our, as our having our lust be the north star that determines every choice and decision we make like Amnon was. No, we're to put it to death. Which begs the question, how do you put sin to death? You know what the answer is? You starve it. Okay. Help me with a debate that has been raging in our household. Okay. Which is the correct statement? Is it feed a fever, starve a cold? Or is it starve a fever, feed a cold? I think it's the first one. Who thinks it's the first one? Who thinks it's the last one? Well, okay, well, boo on you. Okay, well, <laughs> okay. 
But you know what? Listen, regardless, when it comes to killing sin, you know what we need to do? Listen to me. We must feed the spirit and starve the flesh. That's how we kill sin. Feed the spirit, starve the flesh. That is, we don't coddle our sin. We don't entertain sinful, lustful thoughts. Notice what the text says. After a time, David's son loved her. Amnon was filling his minds and thoughts with this forbidden lust. He was allowing his mind to keep dwelling on what God had forbidden, and he was led by his lust. Instead, we must confess our sinful thoughts to God and turn from them back towards Jesus. We starve the flesh. We don't feed it with thoughts, nor do we feed it with opportunities to practice them. Right? We are to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And then we also by God's grace, make every effort to walk in the Spirit. We put off and we put on. We practice, with, with, by God's grace, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, at the risk of sounding like Captain Obvious. I hope, I hope it's clear for us all to recognize and discern that the message of our culture is the exact opposite, is it not? What message is almost universally proclaimed in music, movies, TV, in magazines, is it not this, be controlled by your lusts, satisfy your desires? I mean, the illustrations here are legion. Yet faith be warned, lust is a terrible life guide. Crucify your lusts, don't entertain them. But then second, I think God's word would counsel us to push away those who make sin appealing. Look at what we find here, specifically in verse 5. I take it back, verse 3. We learn from Jonadab that he was a very crafty man. And what does he do? Knowing like Amnon that this was a wrong thing, what counsel does he give? He, He appeals to Amnon's sinful desires. And as we discussed earlier, uh, this is Genesis 3 all over again. Amnon is another Adam listening to the crafty one, seizing what God has forbidden. And again, the Bible is not silent as to what we're to do with those who entice us to sin. Indeed, what does Proverbs say? I mean, the whole book of Proverbs. You just scratch the surface, you get into verse 10 verses, and what's verse 10 of chapter 1 say? It says, my son, if sinners entice you, meaning if they make sin look really good, if sinners entice you, he says, do not consent. That is, push them away. So let let me just drill down here for a second, and this is especially for, for all of us, young and old alike. 
Let me ask, who do you run with? What type of company do you keep? Are your friends those who point you towards righteousness? Or do they paint sin as desirable? Think also for a moment about what kind of content you are consuming. Who are you listening to? Who are you reading? One of the first questions any wise counselor should ask, no matter what the problem is, is tell me, uh, what are you listening to? What are you reading? Who are you seeking advice from? What are they telling you? What counsel have you received in the past? Friend, do not be deceived into thinking that the worldly counsel and entertainment you are consuming on a weekly basis has no influence on you. And if I could be so blunt, I feel I have that relationship with you, if I could be so blunt. Friend, you are quite deceived if you think one 40-minute sermon once a week can help you fight sin when you're immersing yourself in content that makes sin look desirable. Push away from such exposure. And then finally, refuse to trust yourself. Look at what we see there in verse 11. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. And do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Uh, the other day, I was stuck in some terrible traffic on the highway, and it was one of those deals where it was backed up for miles. And you know, you kind of go over a bend, and you kind of can see it goes down and up, and I'm like, oh man, just cars, cars, everything was at a complete standstill. And I thought, well, okay, if, if this is the case, probably, you know, three of the four lanes must be closed, and that's why traffic is, is coming to a standstill. But you know what, that wasn't the case. No, you know what caused the backup? For miles and miles and miles, all the lanes were wide open. You know what caused the backup was two cars had collided earlier, and they were off the side of the road, well off the side of the road. And people just slowed down to look and stare carefully at the damage. Have you ever experienced something similar like that before? I think this 
speaks to a deep perversion within all of us that seems to find a subtle pleasure in observing the damage and carnage afflicted on others. And sadly, it just doesn't show itself in car wrecks off the side of the road. It can also show itself when reading Scripture. In fact, you know what one of our greatest problems is? We can read a text like this, and instead of abhorring sin, we can be intrigued and entertained by it. In fact, is that you this morning? You're more fascinated by the story than you are repulsed by the sin? In his excellent commentary, Dale Ralph Davis makes this insightful comment. He writes, We may be fascinated with Amnon scheming without hating his wickedness. We may be entranced, as many are, with the literary artistry of the story without grieving Tamar's ruin. He says, there's a perversion in us. We are so unholy, we find it supremely difficult to genuinely hate sin. And he's correct. However, being intrigued by sin is not the only crooked action we can take. Sadly, you know what also crooked action we can take? We can put too much confidence in ourselves. Listen, I'm not so sure that Amnon intended to rape Tamar. He might have. But the fact that he first says to her, come lie with me, indicates that at least on some level, he had fanciful thoughts that she would be infatuated with him just as he was infatuated with her. However, she wasn't. So unable to control himself, he rapes her. And there's a lesson here for us, faith, and that is this. Don't be so foolish and think you're above such heinous sins. This is to say, do not put yourself in compromising situations. As Paul writes in Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Don't trust yourselves. As I mentioned to you a little bit earlier, I need help. You need help. Let us avoid putting ourselves in compromising situations. Who knows what the other person has been dwelling on? Who knows what lust might be raging in their heart? or yours. Uh, I'm going to share with you a quote that the author is unknown. However, it's, the quote is spot on, and I, perhaps you've seen it before. It's this quote. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And it's very true. So, faith, I don't want any of us to fall into 
sin, especially sexual sin. I really don't. And I'm not trying to be flippant here or try to be lighthearted, but I, I did want to think how I could best serve us as a church to quickly bring these, these truths to mind so that we can fight lust and the temptation and destruction it leads to. So you'll notice that the subpoints form the acronym CPR. Sure, laugh, chuckle, I don't care. But my hope is that when lust is crouching at your door, wanting to lead you down a destructive path, you can remember, here's what God's word would have me to do. Crucify this lustful passion. Push away from those who are trying to make it appealing and don't refuse to trust myself. This morning, we've been looking at how God's word would counsel us to avoid the pitfall of Amnon. But, does God, but what does God's word have to say to the victims of sexual sins like Tamar? Some of you know what it's like to be in Tamar's shoes. You did not commit sexual sin. Rather, sexual sin was done to you. And afterwards, you were loathed and discarded. And just like Tamar asked in verse 13, as a victim of sexual sin, you wonder... Where can I carry my shame? This was the question I was asked several years ago by a young woman. Sadly, she had been raped by her uncle as a young girl. And even though she did nothing wrong, she felt dirty. And faith, here is another example of where God's word is not only sufficient to help this woman in her suffering, but God's word is superior to all other secu secular counseling models and therapies. Because you know what scripture offers a woman like that? something no one else can, and that is a suffering Savior who died and rose again, and not only to cleanse her from her own sin, which she has, but also to remove her shame and to cover her in Christ's righteousness so that she is no longer to be thought of in her own mind as dirty, but as clean and made new in Jesus Christ. Scripture gives this woman David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? The good news of the gospel is that Christ died to save sinners and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live, and he died the death we deserved to die for our sins. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving who he claimed to be the Son of God. And the incredible offer of Scripture 
is that you can be completely forgiven of your sin. You can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You can have the hope of eternal life. And the shame that you bear, not from your own sin, but from other sins, that shame can be removed in Christ. All by faith. Friend, have you done that? Well, those who commit heinous sins against us might think we are trash. In Christ, you are a beloved child of God. Indeed, Jesus, if you are here this morning and you have, you can identify with Tamar. Friend, please hear me. In Christ, Jesus loves you as much as God the Father loves Jesus. Not only that, in Christ, we have his spirit to empower us to not grow bitter and hardened and waste away, but we have his spirit to forgive those who sin against us. And you know what? That's precisely what that young girl did. As one who has been forgiven much in the Lord Jesus Christ, she forgave her uncle for the grievous sexual sin he had committed against her. And you know what it did to that old man? It broke him. It led him to repentance to the point where he then came to her and said, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And not only did he ask for forgiveness from her, but also to God. And he put his faith in Christ. You see, friend, this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such great news. Now, not every story like this has a happy ending. But in Christ and in his word, we have the resources and the hope to navigate through such difficulties. In Christ, sexual sinners like Amnon can find forgiveness and victims of sexual sin can find healing and newness of life. Amen? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. May we be a church that encourages one another to crucify passions, to push away those who make sin appealing, and to refuse to trust ourselves. And may we, you know, I, I mentioned to you how for, if we're taking the New Testament's perspective on the Old Testament, the Bible makes it clear that all scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. You know one of the ways that this text trains us in righteousness? It teaches us and allows us to better understand how we can minister to Tamar's. And we can share with them the hope and healing that is only found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.